Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to Squatch Radio. My name is Connor Malley, and I'm your host. Before we get into today's show, I wanted to share a little bit about me and why Squash Radio exists. So I've been a passionate squash player for almost 20 years, but what makes my path slightly different from your average squash player is I've also made squash my career. I've worn almost every hat and worked in almost every role in the industry. Some quick examples are I've gone from being a volunteer at a professional event to then becoming the CEO of the US Open. I've gone from trying to make Team USA to then becoming the director of all national teams while working at US Squash. And I've certainly gone from just playing on squash courts to focusing on how the sport can grow in the United States. What has been a big part of fueling my passion all these years are the fascinating, passionate, and dedicated people involved in our sport. So Squash Radio, well, that's just a way to try and help share those stories. We hope you like it. And if you're interested in growing the sport, get in touch. Or can you help share these stories? Comments are welcome on any social media or email us at squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Our biggest challenge is always trying to get the word out. So any help is so much appreciated. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. The more interviews I do, it becomes more clear that I have no favorite episode, because the truth is each episode is special for different reasons. A huge amount of work goes on behind the scenes with our team and each guest to finish these interviews. But the common thread, we think, these are interesting people who are deeply passionate about their craft. So what is it that makes this interview with Janet special? Well, I'm likely joined by many, many other people who agree that Janet is mixed parts, motivational expert, a leader who inspires, as well as your ultimate cheerleader. All this is anchored with Janet's depth of knowledge and wisdom outside of one's normal reach. You can tell Janet is a purebred entrepreneur who learned and mastered the system, but quickly looked to change the game for herself and others. But where Janet truly sets herself apart from the rest of the field is her candidness, authenticity, and drive to help others. All this said, and you might have noticed, I haven't mentioned one of the many lists of her accomplishments throughout her career. Because the point is, imagine regardless of what you achieve, that's the kind of impression you imparted on others. We hope you enjoy our conversation, and if nothing else, on the day we recorded this interview, it made both our days. What about this? This call is being recorded. Hey there, Squash fans. Welcome back to Squash Radio. I'm your host, Connor O'Malley, and we've got another great guest today that I'm so excited to share with you guys, and that is Janet Hansen, calling in from Hastings on Hudson's in New York. And welcome to the show, Janet. Thanks, Connor. Great to be here. So I'd figured to give a little bit of context to the listeners here is, is just quickly share a little bit how you and I get to know each other. And it all started with the wonderful world of junior squash. And um, I actually don't know if you know this, but the first year I joined U.S. Squash was back in 2007. And that t- I distinctly remember that first season where I was involved with junior squash because your son was trying out for Team USA back then, so the junior national team. Right. And, yeah, that was the first season I got to really experience high-level junior squash. And there was Chris was just such a dogged fighter at that at that age like he was really 
so determined at such a young age to do it. And it's so, it's just interesting for me or the, for me that at such the early part of my career, U.S. squash, he was there. And then now even Chris is still very present in my life and interact with him because he's gone through all the way from being an All-American in college and number one in the U.S., men's U.S. champion, playing for Team USA where I was helping them and now seeing them move into the world of entrepreneurship. It's just been such a, a presence in my life. And obviously by then I get to know you better. And you, yeah. I knew you were just remarkable and it's uh, you continue to amaze me. And so I, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, chat with us today. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure for me as well. You know, so I figured what might be an interesting way to help tell your story is actually a little bit talking about your two children. And the reason for that is because they're, they, they're from different worlds in terms of where their professions are right now. But I think there's actually more similarities. And I would love for you to kind of talk about that. So would you mind just giving a little bit of context about your two children? Sure. So Chris has an older sister, Meredith. Uh, she's two years and two months older than Chris. And, you know, they were always very competitive, I think, in a healthy, good way when they were growing up and um, very blessed to both be athletic. Mm -hmm. And so they really delighted in, in any sort of physical activity. And we were so lucky. We, they grew up, you know, their first 10 years or thereabouts in Bronxville, New York. And then we moved to Bedford, which is a much, much more rural area. And they had spent the lion's share of their time outside playing. And I think one of the things that's really remarkable and worth noting is that Chris and Meredith grew up before the age of iPhones. And so there were very few distractions that could kind of get their attention, um, which is, I think, a, a bigger challenge today. Yeah, much bigger challenge today. And so with Chris, let's talk with, because you were there with him when he was trying out for Team USA at a very young age. Talk a little bit about how that experience was for him. And then, it, I mean, it continues on throughout his career. So if you could give the differences of where he started the midpoint and where he is now. I think it's important to go back a little bit farther than that and to, to talk about what was unique or perhaps unusual in how Chris got into the game of squash. And he got into squash at a very early age. His dad enjoyed playing on the weekends at the uh, Bronxville Field Club. And so Chris was introduced to squash when he was probably, I'm going to say six years old, and he's a lefty. So that, that was always kind of interesting to, to watch him learn how to play as a southpaw. So there were some fantastic people on the pro tour at the time. And we used to take the kids, both of them actually, to watch matches, particularly the Tournament of Champions in New York City, you know, maybe the U.S. Open. We actually watched some super squash matches when we were on a vacation in London. So Chris mm. had exposure to the game, but played at the professional level when he was very, very young. And, and of course, it was always very exciting for him to go and get, ask the players to sign, to autograph, you know, a squash ball for him or something like that. And so I think he had great admiration for 
the guys who played and the gals, but primarily the guys who played at the professional level at a very, very young age. And they became kind of his his heroes. And one of the folks coming off the tour in 1999-2000 was Rodney Isles, who had won the world's, I'm trying to remember when that was, uh, maybe early 90s, I think. And so Rod, after he came off the tour, living in Australia with his wife, Michelle, he would make trips over to the United States. And he ended up coaching Chris for a couple of years. And then after Rod moved on, Rodney Martin, a fellow Australian, became Chris's coach. And so what I've always had such great admiration for, these are two guys that both had extraordinary work ethics. And Rodney Martin particularly loved telling Chris that if he did the work, it would... <laughs> It would show up on the court when he was playing as a young junior in tournaments. And that was just absolutely pounded into Chris's head. You have to do the work. So mm -hmm. don't think that you can fake it until you make it. And th both Rods, both Rodney Isles and Rodney Martin, were very, very tough taskmasters. And I think that Chris developed a passion for the game, again, at a very young age, out of tremendous admiration for what these two guys, both two of the best players ever on the Pro Tour, Rod Martin, obviously, also was, I think, ranked number one or number two for, for some period of time during his professional career. And they had tremendous influence on Chris as a junior player. Did Chris have any aspirations of playing professional just sports at all as a young kid? I think he absolutely always envisioned himself turning pro. He had such great admiration for how difficult and challenging squash was at the pro level. And again, it's something as simple as just taking him to watch whatever professional matches he could go see. And I think he probably didn't miss the TOC once from age probably seven or eight on. And again, it, it, it would be no different than a kid watching Major League Baseball and saying, someday that's going to be me. Chris absolutely believed someday he was going to be good enough to join the Pro Tour. So I think that was always a goal that he had, again, from a very young age. Well, certainly with two major icons in the sport having direct access to them and they are really uh, the australians are known for their fitness and their dedication to training they really took it to the next level and, and both of them exemplified that so i can see why uh, at an early age he was being groomed for pro level yeah and i want to it's important to add that there were aspects of his training that he absolutely hated absolutely mm. hated i mean he used to train he used to train in australia Usually in our winter, their summer, it was brutally hot and Isles would have him, you know, running up sand dunes and Chris would throw up and it was brutal. And Rod Martin can remember Rod getting Chris out at 6, 7 a.m. in the morning in the summertime when we lived in Bedford to do sprints outside. And again, I, I can't remember if Chris threw up after those sessions, but I imagine he did. I'm sure he griped about it. 
But nevertheless, he hung in there and he did the work as Rod. Again, it sounds so simple, but it's so hard to do. Sure. And how much was this, was Chris sort of, was this his own motivation trying to push it forward? Or was it a, a team effort in terms of driving to get better at squash? Like, where was that motivation coming from for Chris? I think very much because he is just a superb athlete. And I drilled it into their heads, both Chris's head and Mare's head when they were very young. It was an incredibly corny cliche, but I would remind both of them, Chris, before he would step on the court to play a junior match and Mare, who had become a very good equestrian again at a very young age. I think she started riding when she was six or seven years old. And the the corny phrase that I coined was, remember to congratulate the winner, even if it isn't you. Mm. And when you think about that, right, it's your introduction to good sportsmanship. Yeah. And we never, Jeff and I never tolerated any kind of brattiness. Mayor never, ever displayed any kind of... <laughs> Poor sportsmanship. Chris, uh, he had to work at it a bit when he was growing up, but there was really zero tolerance in our house and certainly with Chris's coaches for anything other than respect for the other player, certainly for your coach. And it's a little tougher, a little tougher, even as Chris grew up in the junior program and then on to college, to have respect for the referees. That is, I think, the ultimate uh, test for a squash player to accept uh, a ref's decision. So it was always fascinating to see how Chris in particular would deal with that kind of pressure, you know, when he was on the court. I think it is. It's very much a learned behavior, in my opinion. Uh, I think there are some people who are more innately comfortable doing that, but I very much so had to learn or be mindful of like, look, I just lost. I'm not happy about it, but I have a, only a short moment to really to how my conduct will be displayed to others. And it, it had to be drummed into my brain about that because it wasn't innate. So I do think right. it takes it's a culture that we need to build. And it's great that you were enforcing that. Well, you know, one thing that Encur I, I'm encouraging, sure... Encouraging, I should say. Encouraging and enforcing. But yeah, <laughs> I'm sure one thing that this will bring back some memories for you, I... It took me a while as a parent to learn that when Chris lost a match, particularly if it was close, that he would walk off the court, he would always shake hands with the ref, shake hands with his opponent, and he would go sit by himself. And back in the early days, I inevitably made the mistake of going over and probably patting him on the shoulder. I learned very quickly not to do that. And the reason why it was so important, as much as I might have been disappointed for him, right? What he was doing at that moment was going back and thinking about the match and thinking about what he could have done better, right? what he would need to work on going forward. He needed that time to really analyze the, the, his own mechanics at that moment. And he, he didn't want anybody to come over and say, and I think this used to, to drive particularly Rod Martin nuts, right? You don't want parental interference, right? And, and Chris would always 
show incredible resilience, really, to improve the outcome. But he had to really learn from his own mistakes. And he would think about the match, and then he would think about what he would need to do differently the next time. And I would have to say, Meredith did the same thing. She would be in a horse show, and there were many days that she did very well. There were other days that she didn't do well at all, right? And it was the same process of analyzing the things that had worked and the things that hadn't. I mean, I think that's a that's an extremely important part of not only maturing as an athlete, but I think really, you know, leads to a better outcome. It's funny you're touching on this topic and even just literally in the past two weeks, this has been very top of mind for me. And what I one of the breakthroughs I had is is really trying to separate processing versus performing. And so when you were just in that little story, it's like, oh, you know, Chris just got off the court, he was performing, but like now he's trying to process his feelings and process his experience and in order to perform better next time. And so I'm doing that mindfully these days because, you know, within business, it's, it's a, we can't negate emotions, but it's like, let's not have emotions control everything and let's give both their space. And so that's really where I'm spending time trying to be, uh, keep it top of mind. Yes, and I think the I think there's perhaps a synonym for that would be an attitude of resilience. And so if you think mm-hmm. back to how many disappointments you've ever had as a squash player or as an athlete, right? And how did you deal with disappointment and varying levels throughout your life and career, right? And if you bank enough disappointments over time, you learn something about yourself. I think it makes you a far more self-aware person because there's an immediacy of having to deal with what went wrong, right? And I, I have to say that Chris and Mare learned more from their losses than they ever enjoyed the highs of their wins. That's so true. I'm curious, you brought up a mantra or what you would the advice you'd give Chris before going on court. But I wonder what other mantras or life lessons were you really trying to at an at a at their early age mold them around? You know, that's a great question, Connor. I grew up I think my parents did the best that they could to give my sister and brother and I every opportunity under much more modest circumstances. In Chris and Mare's young lives. I had spent my professional career 14 years at Goldman Sachs. And then in 1995, Jeff and I rolled the dice and launched our own institutional mutual fund company, which was insane. It was just an absolutely insane thing to think that we could do that. But nevertheless, by dumb luck, a lot of luck, good fortune, great partners. We succeeded. And I think that Mayor and Chris were so lucky to have two parents who were partners in every sense of the word. And they really learned how to collaborate and problem solve. And so I think that was something that was a constant in our household, that Jeff and I were constantly having to innovate and problem solve around our business. And we grew it from no assets to, at our peak, over $3 billion in assets. Wow. Within 
maybe five, six years. And so while we were extraordinarily lucky, the investment that we had to make, right, to experience, yes, some great highs, but a lot of gut-wrenching lows was something that played out in our home daily. And so I think that watching your parents, who were both entrepreneurs, right, have to figure out how to make this work was a life lesson for both of them. So I think that we did less of the, okay, we have to sit down and have a conversation about how you treat people with respect, how you talk to people, how you interact with people. I think that we were just very, very good role models, or at least tried to be. And the other thing that we were so fortunate, our business, our headquarters, our office was in Greenwich, which was only 15 minutes away from our, our home in Bedford. So it allowed us to be very present in Mayor and Chris's lives at a very early age. So we had the best of both worlds. We had a successful business. And then because we were the bosses, we got to decide whether we were going to go watch a practice or a game or horse show or, or whatever. We were extraordinarily lucky. And I think that our kids were the real beneficiaries of that mm -hmm. because there was palpable excitement around, wow, look what happens when you invest in yourself, when you collaborate, when you partner, right? There, the return on that investment is very, very high. I mean, that's just an amazing story to go from zero to three billion in assets. And a, a question that kind of comes to mind, because I'm mindful that both Chris and Mayor were, were young at this age as you're building your business. How would you expose them? Because in one regard, you could just leave work at work and not talk about it. So it sounds like you were trying to model or show your behavior so that they could potentially learn and model in the future. But how would you talk about that with two younger kids who maybe don't even understand what assets mean or clients? And so how would you talk about that with your family? Well, you know, that's, a, that's another great question. They used to come to the office. And when they were really little, like Chris was, again, five or six, Mare would have been seven, eight. So they would come to the office and hang out with us and work on homework or draw or do something of that nature. But the, probably the single biggest influence on the kids was not Milestone Capital, it was not our business. It was when I launched 85 Broad, mm. which was the first of its kind ever network for current and former Goldman Sachs women. And the name of the network was a riff on Goldman's headquarter address in New York City, which was 85 Broad Street. And so we would have events, and Jeff was a regular at all of our events. And again, the audience is pretty much exclusively women. They would come to these events, and they would hear these remarkable women tell their stories. It could be somebody like Allison Levine, who was one of the first women to do the Grand Slam, which is to climb the highest peaks of seven mountains which she attempted to do in 2002 and then successfully did in 2010. So we dragged, and it was really me, but it was, I say we, dragged them to all of these 85 Broads events. And then we were also very, very involved philanthropically. And we were very involved in politics. So Jeff and I were both involved with Kathleen Kennedy Townsend's race for lieutenant governor in the state of Maryland back in the 90s. 
then we got involved with, very much involved with her race for governor. We got involved with John Corzine's race for the Senate in 2000. He had been my boss at Goldman Sachs. So that was very, very exciting. So they were exposed to politics at a young age. They were exposed to philanthropy at a young age. And one of the things that a very fond memory for me, Will Reeve, Christopher and Dana Reeve's son, was a close friend of Chris's at the little school that he attended in Bedford. And I had the great privilege and honor to join the board of the Christopher Reeve Foundation in 2004. And then it eventually became the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation. And that was a cause that was near to our hearts because it was very real Mm -hmm. for both the kids. And they saw how tragedy could be transformed into saying, okay, I am going to use this tragedy, and I'm now talking about Chris Reeve, how can I help other people, right? How can I raise money for this cause? And I think that had such a huge and lasting impact on both kids to this day. And it's amazing. It's amazing to see how Will Reeve is doing. He's really quite an extraordinary young man. And how he has handled not one, but a dual tragedy of losing both of his parents at a very young age. And and I think that has made both Mary and Chris feel a tremendous sense of gratitude for everything they've ever had or experienced throughout their lives. Wow. I mean, you touch you touch on so many <laughs> great aspects there. And two things that jumped out just basing on what your the stories you're telling were sounds like exposure and environments and just how important those are, even at an early age, just bringing, in your case, your children, but this could be for anyone. And this is, you know, with Urban Squash or SEA programs, that's really a bridge that we're trying to to cross. It's like exposure and environment is very important. And I do want to get back to the the nonprofit aspect, but quickly, because you said that very fast of what you did with 85 Broad and... And correct me if I'm wrong. You went from zero to thirty thousand people in the network. Yes. So you have a, you have something yes. with threes. It sounds like uh, three billion and thirty thousand to growth. But talk a little bit about when you went from zero to one or two or what were you? Did you start off thinking you would grow to that big of a network, or was that your wildest dreams, or how did that path come about for you? So it's a again another tremendously insightful question. So. I created 85 Broads because I wanted it to solve a problem that I had when I was at Goldman. And now I had left, right? I was now running Milestone Capital with Jeff and a small team. And I kept thinking about how sad it was that when women left the firm, that there was no way for them to stay connected to Mm. other women at the firm. This is pre-internet. This was 1997. And so 85 Broads was launched in 1997. And as I always like to say, I had invited 30 women to come to the Water Club in New York City for dinner. And I said, this is so exciting. We're all alums of Goldman Sachs. And, you know, we're going to stay connected through this network. And as I've always laughingly said, it, it, felt like a bad high school reunion, which was you got together, 
And, you know, you, you told your war stories about your post-Goldman years, and then that was it. It died, right? There was Because there was no easy, efficient way to stay connected. Two years later, 85broads.com was launched, and we got massive press in the New York Times. Reed Abelson wrote a piece that took up almost the entire front page of the business section of the New York Times oh, wow. about this very, very novel concept of an alumni network. No one had ever <laughs> heard of anything like that, meaning that, I mean, certainly colleges, universities have alumni networks, but corporations did not, uh -huh. right? And as one person at Goldman Sachs explained it to me, they said, and I said, I'd love to stay connected to other women at the firm. You know, this was after I'd left. And they said, well, Janet, one of two things is true. You know, either you left and went to a competitor or we fired you. In either case, we don't care. You know, what, you, what you're doing <laughs> post-Goldman, right? And I thought, wow, okay. And so it made so much sense to me. This is such a simplistic concept. This was not rocket science, right? How critically important it was for women to feel this sense of connection that they, that the women who were at the firm may be struggling with whether to start families or they had young families, right? Or just the rigors of their career, um, that they would have women on the outside who had gone through that, right? Who had been through that war, who they could lean on. And so that was the basic concept that drove the foundation and the launch of 85 Broads. And what happened was we went from being exclusively a network for current and former Goldman Sachs women to inviting women at the top business schools in the country to join because they said, hey, you know, maybe we're not going into banking. Maybe we're not going into Goldman to going to going to go to work at Goldman Sachs, but we need a network. Yeah. Right. And so we said, okay, you can join too. And so what happened was 85 Broads grew very, very rapidly and very organically because at, you know, first we hit the business schools, then we hit the undergraduate schools. And it, and 85 Broads basically became a laboratory. And what I mean by that was women were really not used to testing out their ideas on each other, mm -hmm. right? So there was this whole kind of concept of cross-pollination of, hey, what do you think about this idea? I'm thinking about launching this business, or I'm thinking about going to work for this firm, right? What's your feedback? What do you think? And so there was this sense of trust, I think, that that had never really existed, but we created the platform, right, and the medium for that to happen organically and very naturally, probably, without doubt, the single greatest professional highlight, really, of my life was 85 Broads, and not, not any of the other gigs that I did <laughs> on Wall Street. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word about our sponsor. So, Lee... We want to thank you for being our first sponsor on Squash Radio. And just want to say, you've sponsored other avenues, but Squash is always where your heart's at. What does it mean to you to be sponsoring Squash? 
I, I think there's just a, a lot of interesting people in the sports. I've attended junior tournaments, I've been to professional tournaments, and you can always get into some engaging conversations. And I think squash radio is an avenue of bringing those people to the forefront. And I'm sure a lot of people would like to listen to and sponsoring this, we're just uh, facilitating that. I think you nailed it. Is there anything else you, you might want to add? But I think you, you nailed it. That is, <laughs> that's exactly what I think. Because <laughs> I'm in like with hope. I've met Hope so many times and they've got into a little bit of conversation, but listening to that conversation you had with her, just she's just a squash through and through person. And I don't know how many listeners you get, but it doesn't matter. It's the fact that people can now relate to Hope as this person. Hopefully they're going to do that with me. I'm sure, because I'm quite a private person, I'm not, I've never been a person who hung around the squash circle of people. but. When I do, I've got some very good friends and they will probably know me, but there's a lot of people who saw me at junior tournaments and a lot of my juniors were top players in the country. But uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's a great way of bringing some of the personalities from squash. That was Lee Witham, who is the CEO of Pro Sports LED, the sponsor of this podcast. You probably don't even think about lighting and neither did we until we started talking to Lee. And now we totally get the problem that Pro Sport LED is fixing. And we know maybe that's not you now or maybe not you ever. But if you know anyone who might be interested or need to improve their lighting for squash, tennis, soccer, you name it, it would mean a lot to us and our sponsor if you'd put us in touch. You can go to squashradio.com LED or email squashradio at gmail.com that's squashradio at gmail.com thank you again and back to our show ultimately humans were wired for connection and to provide that even if you had achieved that for you in that first group of 30 i think that would have been extremely likely uh high connectivity and very enriching but then to see it grow to that level, I, I mean, I'm flabbergasted. So it's just so impressive. And there's two, two follow-on questions I have. But one, to give a little bit of a reference point, because you've been talking that you were working, this was inspired when you were working at Goldman Sachs. But could you give a little bit of reference about the reputation for Goldman Sachs? So when this article hit in the New York Times, Hank Paulson was the CEO at the time. So this is 1999. He was the CEO. And at a management committee meeting the day that this piece hit, Hank asked his fellow management committee pals, all men, who gave Janet Hansen permission to do this? And it was reported to me by my friend, Mark Schwartz, who was on the management committee. I'd worked with Mark in the fixed income division. And I said to myself, this is the greatest thing that ever happened to me, because that was the power of the internet. Up until then, right, if Goldman Sachs said, no, we don't want to launch an alumni network, that's a nice idea, but it's not going to gain traction at the firm. And so they could literally, they controlled what happened inside of those four walls, inside of the physical plant of 85 Broad Street. Once the internet was created, we didn't have to ask permission. We could just do it. Mm -hmm. And I think the one of the greatest things for me was that I always had so much respect for the people that I worked with at the firm, got to know after I left the firm. So we always had a spectacular relationship with Goldman Sachs. A lot of women 
senior women in particular who worked for the firm spoke at our events. And so it was a really nice relationship. I was, and, and this is again, the kind of thing that I would teach the kids, right? It's so important to really raise your diplomacy game, right? And so there was so much to be gained by being an ambassador for the firm, even though I wasn't there anymore. And because I struck that tone, that was that was the arc of 85 Broads, which is you have to approach everything in life as a partnership, as a collaboration. And if we couldn't do that in this network, if we were kind of preaching something else or or practicing something else other than that, that just wouldn't wouldn't have been me. Mm-hmm. So the last question I have in this area was, I mean, I have a ton more, but I'm gonna I'm gonna try and restrict myself. But I can imagine <laughs> the New York Times article like coming out and seeing that holding in your hands that this was like, wow, this is I knew it was real, but now everyone knows it's real, right? But my question is, when was the next time that you really saw the impact that 85 Broad was having on your network? Like, was there a story that kind of jumps out to you? I think the big one was Alison Levine attempting to summit Mount Everest in 2002. She was the team captain for Team USA. No, there had never been a U.S. women's team that had ever attempted to summit Everest. And Allison was working for Goldman Sachs in the San Francisco office in 2002. She had taken a leave of absence to train, and she had to raise $350,000. Very, very expensive to summit Everest. It costs a lot of money. And so she hadn't raised a dime. Mm. And so somebody in the San Francisco office said, well, well, why don't you call Janet Hansen? And she said, who's Janet Hansen? <laughs> And so the guy kind of gave him the the backstory. She called me up and she said, look, I need to raise $350,000 in three weeks. I said, okay, well, uh, you know, your karma is so terrible. I said, I'll give you 10,000, right? Then you only have to raise 340, right? It's all good from here. So anyway, long story short, she had reached out to some folks at GM, at General Motors. and, And then it dawned on me, I said, Allison, for God's sake, Goldman's oldest client is Ford Motor. I said, call them, call the bankers who, who you know, who, uh, you know, handle the Ford Motor account. She did. And I said, you know, in about 20 minutes, you're going to call me back with a lot of good news. And she did. She called me back in about 20 minutes. And she said, you're not going to believe this. And I said, oh, yes, I bet I am. <laughs> and she said, Ford wants to underwrite the entire expedition. No way. Why? Because they were bringing out the, wait for it, the Ford Expedition that year. Yes. Oh, my God. So what what a home run. And then she said, she said, and they don't even want you, right, 85 Broads to be in the mix. And I said, okay, no problem. You know, I'll keep my $10,000. She said, no, 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 no. I'll take that $10,000 and we'll give it to Room to Read. And we will build two schools for the kids in Nepal. And that's what we did. Allison got within 285 vertical feet of the, the of the summit and was forced to turn back because of the weather. She got no. that close to making it to the top and didn't make it. Uh. But she came down off that mountain, I mean, crushed. They were so crushed, as you can imagine, that they had gotten that close. 
but they had the ribbon cutting ceremony with the little kids at the place where they were going to build the first of these two schools. So it was just quite extraordinary. And she went back in 2010 at the age of 44. And this time she summited successfully. So that that was probably one of the greatest, again, partnerships, collaboration, success stories of the network. Wow. <laughs> again, with three, though, uh, mm-hmm. 350,000 in three weeks, there's, yeah. there's a trend there. Yep. So speaking of challenges, I'd like to go back to uh, Chris. And the time I want to talk about was when he experienced a concussion. And what, this must have been, what, 2015? No, 2016. 2016. I think it was 2016. And, yeah, I think. And 15 or 16. So here he was on the tour. He was getting some good, some great breakthroughs. And then he experiences a concussion through an accident. And I mean, it's just, I feel like that is a lot of your life lessons coming together for him. But talk about that journey for Chris. Okay, so just to give this a little bit of quick context. So this was post-college. And I had made Chris a promise that I would not miss a single one of his matches. And that was so I made him that promise when he was starting the 10th grade at St. Luke's in New Canaan, Connecticut. It was a brand new school. He didn't know anybody. And I said, I'll, I'll make it to every one of your matches. And I did. Wow. I never missed a single match. And one of the things that happened, it's because I think it is, a, it's a poignant story and it's worth noting. In his senior year, he said, Mom, I want to play lacrosse. He said, I don't even care if I only make the JV. He said, I want to play that badly. Wow. And I was like, hey, done. That's fine with me. I'll come to all your lacrosse matches too. And I did. Right. And it was so important for him to play another sport. Why? Lacrosse is played outside. Right. Girls come. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Have a little more fan support than you do perhaps at squash matches. And he had the time of his life. And I thought that that was just the most extraordinary thing, that here was this kid who was a senior in high school who said, even if I only make the JV, I want to play. And just throwing caution to the wind, you know, obviously, it's a a very physical sport, a contact sport. I'm like, okay. And then fast forward, how Chris decided on Dartmouth, he had played in the fall foliage tournament throughout his junior, when he was in, in junior high and high school, and he loved it there. And he loved John Power. And so he, he thought, well, wouldn't that be just swell? And so he just kind of decided he wasn't really a fan of cold weather, but he thought that maybe Dartmouth would be a good fit. It turned out to be a spectacular fit. He played number one for Dartmouth all four years, all Ivy, all American. He won the Kenneth Archibald Award, which is awarded to one athlete in their, typically in their senior year out of, I think, about 500 athletes, and Chris won wow. it in his senior year. And it's given, it's awarded to an athlete, not just based on athletics, but scholarship and ethics, moral ethics. And I was so proud of him. That was one of the, the single most proud moments I ever had as a parent. 
to be there at that ceremony when that happened. He graduated from Dartmouth, immediately turned pro. It's it's so, so not glamorous. The pro tour is not glamorous. I mean, somebody should try to imagine what's Winnipeg like in, you know, February. It's tough. And so the places where he was playing, these were places that would take usually a whole day to get to. It was tough. He happened to be on Nantucket. Again, my recollection, it may have been 15, but I think it was 16, 2016. He was going to the airport. His sister was driving him and his girlfriend, Megan, to the airport. And a gal came around the corner, hit Mare head on. Oh, my gosh. And Chris hit the back seat, then the front seat, the front of the back seat, very hard. It became apparent very quickly that he had suffered a concussion. And I have to say that it was the most frightening time of his young life. Most people, understandably, don't know what it's like for someone, particularly a loved one, to have a concussion. What are the what are the symptoms? What happens? Some things happen right away. Some things start to bubble up to the surface a month or two later. And what was terrifying was we didn't know how, what was the right course of treatment. And so a number of doctors said, well, we'll put you on antidepressants, a lot of them. Oh, wow. Others said you need to go lie in a dark room and stay there for maybe forever. He finally had the opportunity to chat with a young gal, friend of my brother's, who had had a concussion a few years before. And she said, hey, listen, I went to this really great clinic in Detroit, and they specialize in concussions. Chris and I literally got on a plane and flew to Detroit. And it was a huge dice roll because I was thinking to myself, this better work. I hope this works. And it was the first time, right, in months that there was even a ray of hope that he was going to he was going to get better. But he had to put his faith in these specialists and he had to do uh, paging Rod Martin. He had to do the work. He had to slowly come back, but he had to do all of the physical therapy that's necessary and how he ever did this. It was 2016 because how my son managed to come out of that concussion again, which was terrifying from the standpoint of how depressed he got, terrifying, managed to come out of that, get back on the court, start to train again, to think that he could resume his professional career and in the spring of 2017, win the U.S. National Championship in Philadelphia. I think that would be, without doubt, the greatest single moment of his young life was managing to do that. And I think he learned a great deal about resilience and that there were no shortcuts and that it was going to take time and patience and effort. And and it was worth it. I mean, a very not long period of several months went from concussed the champion and I think I may get this slightly wrong, but I remember talking to Chris about this. And there's an element that just even him being able to think he was okay to compete took pressure off. He's like, my goal is to just step on court, right? And hit a ball. 
and I think that's an element of when we're talking about performance of like, sometimes it's helpful to have that as a goal versus the outcome. Right. And yes, it's, I mean, if anything at a young age where I could tell about Chris was he embodies so many great characteristics of a, of a person, but especially an athlete is how he distinguishes himself. But doing the work, like you've said multiple times is I think his superpower that I know. Of. I'm sure you know more of his superpowers than I do, but that's, it's just so clear to. Well, you know, I think that that's, that's such an interesting point, Connor, because I think there is not anywhere near enough focus and attention paid to a person's mental state. How much, where you are mentally at any given moment, it's either your best friend or your biggest enemy. Mm-hmm. And Chris spiraled into depression in a way that was utterly terrifying. And I was way out of my depth. I mean, I really, I, I, I was like, oh my God, I, I, I hope we survived this. Yeah. And I think it was this belief that somehow we were going to get through this together. And again, I don't have any background in any aspect of medical anything, but it was kind of saying, okay, we're going to try this and and see if it's successful. And maybe we're going to have to shift your course of treatment to something else. And I think the scariest moment, the scariest moment was saying, okay, can you get your mind back? Can you get your your mind to work the way it needs to and you know how fast that squash ball moves right so if you're having difficulty vision issues or mobility issues or you're just so down right all of those things factor into your performance and again i i think this is just such a testament to chris's resilience but also there was a point in his recovery when he said that he had to do this 100% without medication. And that was a decision that he and he alone had to make. Everybody is different. Everybody is going to take a different approach. You know, what works for one person perhaps doesn't work for another. But he got literally gutted it out. And I think the other thing is, the other thing is, he loves the people, you know, who represent the world of squash in the U.S. And he had you, he had Adam, he had his teammates, he had Kevin, he had Paul Asiante. I mean, he had so many people supporting him and encouraging him and believing in him, really, that I, I, I really think that that probably was the single biggest factor that brought Chris to that moment when he beat Andrew Douglas in the finals. In 2017, and then he, he did it again in 2018, <laughs> yeah. and that was a thrill. And then he lost to Todd, his best buddy on the tour, and all through junior squash. And you know that was the moment. Remember to congratulate the winner, even if it isn't you. And he loves those guys, and that perhaps is a great segue to their experience in Lima, Peru, in the 2019 Pan Am Games, and just how incredibly special that was to represent the United States for Andrew, for Todd, for Chris, for Amanda, Sabrina, and Olivia. What a high that was. What a moment. 
what an experience that was for these kids. I've always been a huge fan of Team USA. I think in, in I'm just in any sport, right? In soccer, you name it, tennis. But what's I feel I've had um, the unique privileges is getting to know the athletes behind the scenes and seeing who they are and even from a young age. And so to your point there, like all those athletes you just said are also really great people. And they've really seen some of the various aspects in their careers that they've had to navigate. And it's just impressive where they have all ended up. Yeah. And I think the, you know, it's so interesting because if you fast forward it to today, so Meredith graduated as an art history major from Wheaton College, moved to Nantucket, was a serious studio artist, had a gallery very briefly, then decided, nope, I don't want to be doing these big oils and acrylics and and showing in galleries. And so she moved into gouache, which is basically watercolors. And so she designs products and apparel. Her latest big one was for Vineyard Vines nationally, which was very, very exciting that her artwork is on some of their products that are in their holiday collection. Nantucket is figured in very very prominently in in Mare's amazing artistic career. And Chris, where is he now? He's He and Megan are now in Philadelphia after being nomads, really nomads for the last, last eight or nine months throughout the pandemic. And they've settled in Philly. And Chris is about to turn 30. His 30th birthday is on Saturday. And he's so excited. And he wants to continue to play and coach and mentor. He's, he's, he's very much a part of the urban squash scene. It's also a big part of the, it's a cause called Squash Cancer at Dartmouth. And they partner with the Dartmouth-Hitchcock uh, Hospital. And that's something that is very near and dear to his heart. He being part of, of that wonderful cause and has enjoyed getting to know so many of these kids. And I think that he has very much a sense that, you know, whether it's through his business, which is Raya Eyewear, his new performance eyewear company that he founded with his middle school friend, Jordan Kemp, that he is going to continue to to be very performance driven and oriented, whether it's on the squash court, in his business, in his life, the example he wants to set, that goes for his sister as well. So I feel extraordinarily blessed. I think about that every single day. Yeah. I mean, what better accomplishment than having two young adults really thriving? And I say that with, I know that doesn't mean that there aren't challenges, but to have found sort of their their footing, I think is just the best way to represent what, you know, I think they learned from you. Well, you know, I... So this happens almost in every conversation. And I typically talk to my kids uh, literally almost every day. I talk to Mayor probably two or three times a day, Chris, usually every day or every other day. And one of the things that Chris loves to start the conversation with, he'll, he starts the conversation by saying, Ma, Ma, you're going to be so proud of me. Uh-huh. And I always interrupt and say, wait a minute, I'm always proud of you. And I think that that sense of joy, and optimism, right, about if you work hard, if you invest, right, in your career or your friends, uh, your business, whatever it is in life, the return on that investment is measurable, 
and important. And I think what we we call it return on investment, it's ROH, it's return on happiness. And I think that's something that is absolutely the the core of, of our belief system, really, which is just the sense that if you work hard, may sound corny, but you will enjoy the fruits of your labor, maybe not immediately, but eventually. I mean, I think that's what we really strive for every single day. This is another topic for me that has become, it's been percolating for, I would say, easily eight years, way more top of mind in the past four years. My wife is, she studies positive psychology. And so (laughs) I, I get the benefit of her experiences and knowledge. And so, you know, I love the, what you just said, return on happiness. And that is exactly how we're trying to orient our life. And that doesn't, it just doesn't mean that we're, there's a lot of struggles that we have, and there's a lot of things that we need to do in order to live in this modern world. But that is our, our sort of North Star that we're trying to orient our life behind. So it's very, I love what you just said there. So the last question I'll have before we go into our quick fire section, it has to do with both your children are now basically, they're building brands in the 21st century, one in the sports world, one in art world. But I'd love for you just to give a high level sort of compare and contrast of you who is also building businesses during your career, what you see as either the advantages or disadvantages within the 21st century approach? Well, um, I think it takes a profound understanding of the power of social media for good or for bad, right? I think it's all about how you connect with your clients or your partners, your consumers, right? And so the concept of authenticity is clutch, right? So in order for Raya to succeed as a high-performance eyewear company, they had to have a discipline, a willingness, right, to make something that they were, that Chris and Jordan were, really proud of. And I think that's really what it takes to succeed in today's world as an entrepreneur, right? It is an excitement. It is, you know, kind of feeling like you're always in the laboratory. You're always innovating. You're always trying to come up with something that's even better, right? Because the end user is is going to be your judge and jury right? They are going to decide whether all the work you put into your product is good enough. And again, I think it's that that willingness to work hard, right? Even if you sit there, and I know for a fact this happened the first few months, year of Raya's existence, what if we don't sell any? What if no one buys our eyewear? Then what? So the moments of doubt, as to whether you're going to be able to create something that people are going to actually want, right? Mm -hmm. That's scary. That is a high wire act if there ever was one. And he and Chris and Jordan have built this, bootstrapped this company from day one. And they're currently very, very focused on the tennis market. They've had tremendous success in pickleball. I think they're now the the Pickleball, National Pickleball Association, they have an exclusive contract with them as the eyewear company for pickleball players. They 
moved aggressively into tennis. That is a sport that Jordan played at Trinity College. So that was his sport. They will eventually make it hopefully into the into the protective eyewear market in squash. But they're they're looking across verticals. Yeah, they were featured in Tennis Magazine, if I'm not Tennis Magazine. Yeah, I mean, which is yes. huge for yeah. year one brand essentially. Yeah. So the the key takeaway I think is that that sense of resilience and and coping mechanisms, dealing with failure, right? Dealing with rejection, dealing with well, I'm sorry, because of the pandemic, we're going to have to shut our factories down in Milan, which is where the frames and the lenses are made, right? So it's one thing after another, mm-hmm. right? One disappointment after another. And then all of a sudden, something goes right. And so that, that that's kind of where Raya is at this moment. And the, yeah, you learn a lot as an entrepreneur. Maris found this to be true. Some projects, some collaborations that she's she's worked on over the last, you know, four or five years have been very successful. Others less so. Some have been great. Some have been disappointing. At the end of the day, it comes down to how do you manage it, right? And and we're living in a world that is very transparent. So every one of your m- mistakes is somehow it's going to appear on social media, right? I mean, there's no place to hide anymore. Uh And so you have to, I think, have, you know, kind of a tougher hide, quite frankly, to put yourself out there because the rejection is very public. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm very proud of both of my kids because it's been a struggle. Again, they have both bootstrapped their businesses, but they're committed to creating something of value, right? And and I think it's the, the proverbial client service, and that can't be an oxymoron. So either your clients are happy, and in the case of Chris and Jordan, it's their customers. In the case of Merit, it's who she partners with to do these collaborations. And yeah, every day you got to get up and kick yourself in the ass and get going. I think those are profound words to leave hanging as we close out this section. I'm going to move into the quickfire section. And I was very excited recently, uh, inspired by one of the other guests we had coming on the show where he's like, hey, can I talk about some squash subjects? And I was like, you know what, for a squash podcast, we probably should have a component of that. So we've now built this uh, quickfire into two sections of some questions about squash, but then also some more get to know you. So the first section, which I'll call the 90 second drill of quick fire with Janet is where I'm going to say a topic within um, the sport of squash and love to get your 90 second thoughts on maybe one thing that you love about that area and also one area mm-hmm. that you'd love to see improved. So give a little bit of some of your opinions. So the first area, one that I know is close to your heart is a uh, pro squash. Easy one. I would love to see more college grads, college squash players join the pro tour. I think it is, it's an extraordinary opportunity for growth. So I'd love to see a lot more kids, both men and women, turn pro. And anything about it, what do you love about professional squash? The level of intensity of how good these players are. Oh my God, because they're doing it. This is their livelihood, right? So the amount of training that goes into being a ranked player on the tour is just massive, right? Because if that is how you are going to earn a living, you got to rock up every day and be ready, 
and just to say, I'm going to give it all I've got. And it's incredibly exciting to meet players. I sit on the board of the Professional Squats Association Foundation U.S., and I know a ton of the players. I've gotten to meet them, had the great privilege to meet a lot of players over the years. I, I can remember meeting Ali Farag when, when he was at one of his first invitationals. And I thought to myself, oh my, oh my, oh, this young guy is going to rock the world of squash. And of course, yes, he is. So it's just been incredibly exciting to see a lot of these kids go from being very good junior players onto college, and then turn pro. And some of them are really exceptional. I mean, Ali has sort of demonstrated that you can go to college, and he went to Harvard, get a degree, and then join the tour, because then he turned number one. So I think it's sort of removed a layer of excuse of anyone not exploring your idea of potentially going from college into the pro ranks. But that actually segues 100%. nicely into college squash. So what is the, maybe what's, let's start with the area that you'd want to see improved. I would love to figure out a way, some smart person needs to figure out a way how to create, generate more fan support because it's such an exciting game. I mean, I think if more kids could spend an hour, you know, watching a match, I can remember being at Dartmouth or traveling on the road, going to other schools, and just the team aspect of college squash is incredible. It's just incredible. And it beats sitting outside a freezing Hanover winter watching a football game, right? So if the colleges could do more to encourage more fan support, to get more people to come because it's so much fun to watch. And then what about an aspect of it that you love? I think you kind of touched on it. It is a very exciting. Anything beyond that in terms of college well, squash? I, and... I mean, my fondest memory of college squash. Again, I never missed a single one of Chris's matches. I did get to his Amherst match a little late because Meredith and I drove to the wrong Amherst squash center. We went to uh, UMass Amherst. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> uh, and not Amherst College. It is we confusing. A... It is yeah, confusing. Yeah, we got there a little late. We did get there. That was my one sadness, although I did make it. So technically, I made it to every single one of Chris's matches. I think the funniest part of my four years of being a squash parent was how loud I was. I was so obnoxious and loud. And Meredith started calling her brother Criffer when he was born because she couldn't pronounce Christopher. And that morphed into Criff. And so for his family, I cringe when I think about, I have to call my son Chris because that's, you know, his real grown-up name, but he is known <laughs> as Criff to his mother and his sister. And so we would be in the, America's Mermaid to a lot of Chris's matches as well. And we would be screaming, you know, go Criff, go Criff. And he would look <laughs> up at me and, oh my God, you know, that is, that is when that moment, if looks could kill. You know, that's that's exactly what they were. That, that was what they were referring to. It was so loud. So but that is my absolute fondest memory of Chris's four years at Dartmouth. Well, I also think that goes in with what you want is you experience. I mean, that's what we would call fan support. And you experienced it because uh, you were giving it. And I totally agree. It really is just such a fun live product. There's ways that we, we need to improve in the sport for sure. Right. 
So next topic, again, something you're very familiar with, but now that you have more perspective because Criff is no longer competing at the junior squash level. <laughs> Don't say that. I know, I know. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Don't let that one stick. I will, I will. Yeah. Junior squash. What would you want to see improved? I think we were so lucky. Again, I, geez, I just think we were so blessed because... We didn't, Chris was in his junior year in high school. We didn't have any plan. The whole thing of, well, you need to do well on your SATs or your ACT so you can go to college. And I would say to him, Chris, if you don't buckle down, if you don't do well, and actually he was quite a good student, you're going to end up in the local community college, which would not be a bad thing. But maybe, maybe you need to double down here just a tad, right? And so our whole approach to where he was going to go to college, I have to say, was completely half-assed because I certainly didn't know. I didn't understand, you know, what a, a student athletic index was. And I can actually, I'll share a funny story with you. Chris and I went down to Princeton to have a chat with Bob Callahan. Mm hmm so we sat down and we thought this was going to be lovely. He's obviously the Princeton coach. And so Chris said, he explained to Bob that he had beaten Clay Blackiston in a match. So clearly he was Princeton material, <laughs> right? And he clearly, you know, he had beaten Clay in a match. And Clay at the time, I think, was a freshman at Princeton. And Bob looked at him and he said, Clay Blackiston got into Princeton on his academic academics attitude, yeah. I think he muttered something like, you idiot. <laughs> I mean, that was just the dumbest thing ever. I beat Clay Blackiston in a match, so therefore, I'm a shoe in right? And Bob made it very, very clear, well, uh, no. <laughs> no, you're not. And so we kind of, we got in the car and went home and said, well, golly, now what? And I think that it was just all luck, magic, happenstance, because there was no formula. There was no strategy that I can recall. It was, where will you be happy? Where do you want to go? Where do you like the kids? Where do you think you would be the happiest, both academically and athletically? And Dartmouth was just the right fit. I think the pressure that parents understandably put on kids today, I mean, Chris matriculated to Dartmouth in the year 2009. Here we are 11 years later. The competition to get into a top school is so fierce. It's so intense. I don't know that we would have survived that. I, we were just incredibly, incredibly lucky that it was so serendipitous and so fun. And then John Power, he retired as the head coach at Dartmouth and Hansi Veens took over. He was the assistant, and Chris got to play for Hansi all four years. Greatest, I mean, just, again, blessed. I would agree. I think navigating the junior world of squash, I mean, there are some very real challenges of, A, I don't think it's very clear, and I know the CSA right now and U.S. Squash is doing a much better job of, of trying to demystify what that looks like, because otherwise that causes anxiety almost unnecessarily. And so... I think that's been a market improvement, but it's still, it's just competition has increased and fewer spots are available. Is there any one quick thing that you loved about junior squash? I think the sense of camaraderie and one of the first kids that Chris played as a junior in the under 11s was Todd Harity. And they were friendly rivals. 
They both matriculated to college in the same year. Chris never took a match off Todd the entire four years. They both played number one. Todd played number one for Princeton. Chris played number one for Dartmouth. I think one of my fondest memories is how many great friends Chris made with his fellow squash players, both men and women at Dartmouth, but then the other schools. There is this amazing bond that these kids have and that he and Todd have to this day. And I think they could remember the first time they battled it out in juniors at the age of nine or 10, like it was yesterday. And I am just so proud of both of them. They both turned pro when they graduated, and they've gotten to play together on Team USA. It just, yeah, just really pretty extraordinary. The next area is refereeing or officiating. What do you love about that? I think it teaches the kids, and I think this has gotten tough. I mean, I, I haven't attended a junior match in quite a while, but Boy, I'll tell you something. I always used to tell the kids that if they talk back, that I would wash their mouths out with soap, right? I said, you know, you really haven't lived until you've chomped down on a bar of ivory soap, really. <laughs> and so we kind of put the fear of God into having respect for the referees. And you got to remember, at the college level, at the junior level, your opponents our teammates are the refs. And then when you get to the professional level, you better figure out in a hurry how to handle that pressure. I think yeah. there could be, there's room for improvement in terms of the skill set that refs need to possess in a game where the ball is moving that fast and you have to make very, you know, split second decisions. But it's really, in my humble opinion, up to the players to be able to have a level of comportment on the court. Yeah. Well said. I think, like you said, it's a very, it's a tough job being in that seat. And therefore, it's also what I like about the sport of squash is we as players often find ourselves in that same seat. So it's kind of like, how would we want to be treated? And, and when you're on court, kind of extend that same courtesy. Yeah. And I think one thing that I would just add to that is that the pressure that Chris put on himself as a junior was self-imposed, right? So whatever pressure he felt, Okay, or anxiety, or hoping that he would do well, otherwise known as win, right, was pressure that he put on himself. I think the amount of pressure that are on junior players today is exponentially greater. And so the likelihood that maybe you kind of lose it on the court, right, and talk back to a ref, or I hate to say it, slug your opponent, that's got to stop. But it, it's awfully hard to reverse a trend that is probably only going to get worse, which is that how you do, how you are ranked as a junior is going to very definitely impact where you end up going to college. Yeah. So the last question in this section is just open-ended in terms of desired future plans for the sport. Where do you see it? Where would you like to see it go? I would like to see more public facilities built like Manhattan Squash, um, I think is awesome. I mean, they, they were really just getting up ahead of steam, you know, when the pandemic hit. I'd love to see more outdoor squash. Again, how many different ways can more young people experience this extraordinary game? Because I think, one, there are tremendous health advantages. So I think if there's any way to get more kids on the court to have the experience, the elation of playing this incredible game, 
will be hugely additive to the sport. And I think that this is a very, very challenging trying time for the game of squash, certainly in this country, because it's played primarily indoors. And so, you know, everybody's hopes and dreams are pretty much on hold until the vaccine is made available to the masses. So again, I think this is really going to test the mettle of players at every level. And the only thing I have to add is it saddens me to no end that kids have missed their senior year. Someone like Andrew Douglas, who will not get to play his senior season at Penn because of the virus. And that has to be incredibly disappointing. And so I give these kids, all these kids, so much credit of trying to figure out how to deal with remote learning, missing their friends, not feeling like they're really a part of the college or academic community. I think it's incredibly, incredibly challenging. I share your concern for the future, uh, the immediate future of where squash is. And I am trying to be optimistic that we opportunities that we don't yet know will emerge from this. And I think outdoor squash is one of those focal points that has been getting more attention recently. And I'm also semi-optimistic that I think we keep pinning our hopes and dreams on the Olympics. And I'd like to see that shift just more towards let's improve our experience and exposure to squash for others. And the byproduct might be is that we get in the Olympics. I think it's let's create a strong, healthy sport that we all love and, and aim for that. Absolutely. How we get there, you know, this are challenge our <laughs> challenges, but I think we need to come yes. together more behind a shared vision. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. So the last section of this is the quick fire, but the random questions. If they go nowhere, no worries. That's on me and the question I was asking, but uh, <laughs> Start off with a simple one is, do you have a favorite movie and or documentary? Oh, boy. Documentary. Yeah. My favorite documentary is Touching the Void about hmm. two climbers who attempted to climb a very, very challenging mountain in South America. <laughs> I've watched it about a hundred times. Really? Uh, because, yeah, one of the two mountaineers had to make the decision to cut his partner loose had because he had gone over the side and oh my gosh. so he was they were both going to be pulled off so he had to cut the rope and boom so joe went down into this crevasse and simon made it down to the mountain but with tremendous guilt that he had sent his climbing partner to his death and somehow joe managed with a broken leg to get out of this crevasse, I mean, it's just unbelievable. I shouldn't give away the ending, but <laughs> so yeah, that's 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 my favorite. My other two favorites more recently would be Kobe Bryant's documentary and The Last Dance. Mm -hmm. You know about the Chicago Bulls. I mean, I, I I'm I'm <laughs> I'm a sucker, right? For you know the whole concept of you know how do you put together a winning team and yeah and the champion season and all that. So. Well, and it also illustrated the adversity that they all faced when they were on the same page. Despite that adversity, they were able to channel their energy towards being a championship team and against yeah. so many external odds. Yeah, it was yeah. so well done. Next question is, what gets you fired up? And this could either be in squash ward or outside of it and either negative or positive. What gets you fired up? 
Uh, really, uh, so I'm kind of a glasses entirely full kind of gal. So what gets me fired up is talking to my kids about ideas. So if, if mm. Chris wants to bounce an idea off me that he has for Raya, whether it's around product innovation, marketing, capital raising, whatever, uh, believe me, I have an opinion. That <laughs> fires me up. Helping Mayor figure out how to navigate different partnerships and collaborations, that gets me fired up. So I'm very, very lucky because I'd be in a tough spot if my kids didn't enjoy talking to me. I, I, I'd be 0 for 2. So I'm very lucky in that regard. Yeah, that is special. The next question is, what is something or an activity that brings you tremendous amount of happiness? And the one caveat I'll give here is, you know, I think family and friends and pets kind of, they just naturally bring us a ton of happiness. So think more of an activity or, or an actual physical thing that you do that brings you disproportionate happiness. Discovering my love for walking, meaningful walking. So I walk a couple of miles a day and I find the toughest hills in my town to walk up. And in the nicer weather, particularly when I'm on Nantucket, I ride my bike 20, 25 miles a day, which is because we have these incredible bike trails on Nantucket. And all these, those are two things that I do alone. Usually I have my headphones on, usually listening to a book on Audible. I find the solitude around physical activity, pushing myself and doing it for hours mm -hmm. to be probably the best thing that I can do for myself, both mentally and physically. I think the physical element sort of we could all understand and relate to, but the mentally, is there a mindset that you try and put yourself in when you're walking or are you trying to let go? Like, what are you doing when you're walking for your mind? Well, so what, what's so incredible, it's such a wonderful, wonderful question because so you've got to be walking at a brisk enough pace or riding your bike with purpose, right? To kick your endorphins into gear. And so it's that not the runner's high, the biker's high, the walker's high, right? That mm -hmm. kicks in probably about a half hour into my bike ride or my walking. And that's a lifesaver for me because it is probably the single thing that affects my outlook. And it's something that I absolutely need to do every single day to stay positive. There's a, there are a lot of things to be really bummed out about right <laughs> yeah. now or less hopeful about, or perhaps I'm not so optimistic about. So it's something that I do. It's, it, it's like a religion for me. It's a way that I push myself literally and figuratively. It's something that I do not kind of as an extracurricular. I, it has to be a core part of my day because it very definitely is the single most important way for me to be positive. That makes total sense. But quick question then, we live in cold climates. How do you do walking in this cold weather? Well, I was out there this morning and it was so important. I said, okay, well, I have an hour and a half, two hours before we were going to jump on this call. And it's that rigor, right? It's the discipline. It's the push yourself mentality that impacts everything I do for the rest of the day. It's kind of like get up, get off your couch, right? Put your coat on, put your sneakers on and get out there. And so I basically am kind of have this training mentality all the time. It, it really, it's a lifesaver. Yeah. Next question is, are you familiar with TED Talks? Yes. 
So the scenario I'm going to give you is that you're going to be giving a TED Talk. However, the caveat is it can't be something that you're widely known for. And so it could be either something that you're curious about going to explore and then share or something that you've always done, but not many people would know that publicly. So what would be your TED Talk? Boy, you know, that, again, another great question. I think it would be my profound love of nature. And nature is kind of, uh, you know, nature, the outdoors, of being very present. When I'm walking, maybe I'm very intensely listening to a podcast or a book or something, but I am intensely aware of my surroundings. And I would say that 99.99% of the people on this planet are very unaware of how much the environment and this sort of natural beauty of the world. And you could say, well, what's beautiful about where you live? Well, some things are, a lot of things aren't, right? But it really depends on what it is that you choose to see. And I am so lucky to have grown up in the Northeast, to experience the four seasons. Now that I am ancient, I would sure love to be in warm weather more than cold weather, but it is something that has always profoundly amazed me about just the beauty of the world that we live in. And if it's not what you're looking at, well, then you can look up. And it is my love of photography And then what is it that I'm looking at through the lens of that camera, right? And for me, whether it's a sunrise or a sunset or looking at the ocean or where I live, I get to look out onto the Hudson River. It has an extraordinarily calming effect on me, but I'm also just profoundly, I have this profound sense of gratitude that I get to experience any of this, which kind of translates into feeling incredibly lucky to be alive. Yeah. If you had to pick sunset or sunshine. Definitely a sunset kind of gal. I take a lot of sunset pictures, some better than others. You know, usually just with my iPhone, I just delight in seeing the colors over the Palisades. Just does it for me. And I think (laughs) that I've been so happy because that is something that the kids have also, Mary and Chris have both experienced throughout their lives. It is a sense of there by the grace of God go I get to be surrounded by trees or look at the ocean, right? Or walk on a sandy beach or go into the woods or a forest and experience nature. I I think there is just this profound sense of gratitude, and it is something that my kids, both of them, share. And I think if somebody said, well, what what are you the proudest of? That would probably be it. Makes sense. Total sense. So the last question I have, this has been an absolute pleasure, but the last question we're going to leave it on is, if you could recommend, or maybe there's something that you've gifted, either a book or a podcast, take your pick, but... Is there anything that you recommend to people to uh, read and or listen to? Gosh, I have to say, this is so cheesy. This is so incredibly cheesy, but we wrote a book in 2006, appropriately titled More Than 85 Broads, and it is the story, the stories of 95 women in the network, and 
the chapters were divided up as parents, givers, ambassadors, trailblazers, survivors. That's how we kind of divided uh, and then figured out who we wanted to have tell their story. And the stories are really, really, really remarkable. I wrote the introduction to each one of those chapters, and I go back and I read those stories to go back and remember what other people have experienced. And again, the great highs that people had through success or the challenges. And two of the gals in the survivors section of the book didn't. They didn't survive. And so I go back and I, I think about how incredibly alive and amazing both of these two gals were. And I'm just grateful to have had these women, all of these women, in my life because they, I just found that being part of a community and being able to invest in what I loved. And, you know, what I loved was investing in other women. And I, I did that for many, many years. And the return on that investment, when I say invest in women, it was just actually saying pretty much as cheesy as it sounds, you go, girl, you've got this, right? And so you think that that's really reserved for the world of sports. No, it is for anything. It is for anything that you try to do in life. Can you be on the sidelines? Can you encourage somebody, right? Does it make a difference? It's a question that I'm sure people ask throughout their lives. And I will tell you resoundingly, it is possibly one of the, other than my two kids, it is probably the single greatest achievement of my life, which is absolutely to cheer women on to go and do great things with their lives and to be real trailblazers and then to go out and inspire others. I, I think your recommendation couldn't be more fitting because I think what you said of investing in other people. And I think you do that with your, your gift of words and your gift of time, which both I've been uh, a recipient of today and hopefully others will get to enjoy. And to recall some of the words that you've shared with us today is uh, resilience, grit, collaborate, diplomacy, partnership, problem solving, gratitude, positivity, being aware of your surroundings, finding the right fit, moving with purpose. But I think some of the closing ones that I would say really is, is creating value, but return on happiness being where you can aim. And I just really want to thank you for your time today. Oh, it's been a pleasure. I, I, I love this. I love this, Connor. So thank you. You made my day, really made my day. Well, and uh, I've, I said it before, but I'll say it again. You know, you really, I, I don't know Meredith as well, but I can certainly tell by the young, wonderful young man that you've raised with Chris. I mean, it really is embody so many of the great things of who you are and he does in his own way too which i think is important but really you've succeeded continually in that regard so thank you again thank you well thank you so much for your time today and for joining us on squash radio we hope you enjoyed this latest episode but before you leave we just have one quick last message as you know, Squash Radio wants to help tell some of the best stories from Squash World. But in order to do that, we want and welcome your help. Do you know a person, 
or a story that involves squash that is interesting, funny, moved you, you care about, reflects your passion for the sport, well, share it with us and let's try and get it out there on the air. You can email me at squashradio at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Again, thanks for your time and, well, until next time, be well and have fun.